Good morning, Southern Maine. You're listening to Tad Smart Talk with Steve. I'm used to talk to BLOB, 1310 AM, and of course, 100.5 FM, and also at TideSmartRadio.com. And where else? Uh, iTunes download, right? You bet. We have a potential audience of like 3 billion people. Oh, at least. Yeah, you never know how many are listening, but... I know. <laughs> maybe 3 billion somewhere. Or maybe at least they two can. and a half. Hey, this is our first show of the new year. Happy New Year, Deb. Happy New Year. Same thing to you, Emily. Happy New Year over there. Happy New Year. Wow, it's January 7th, Saturday. Yeah. Hey, before we get going, we've got to On This Day, and in about 14 minutes, we have uh, Mike Haggerty, Coach Mike Haggerty, as well as uh, respected teacher Mike Haggerty from the Yarmouth School System. He, was the head co- he is the head coach of the boys' varsity soccer uh, we interviewed him yesterday, but before we get to that, that'll be in about 14 minutes. Uh, did you do anything interesting over the holidays? I took vacation. I had all the grandsons over all week and the dog, and we played games till we dropped. We you, had a blast. You, you had the dog. Yeah, my yeah. son's dog. Oh. He loves to come to my house. So I said, just just keep him. I'll keep him all week. Bring the dog. Yeah. Well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> How about you, Emily? Did you go anywhere, do anything? Uh, I didn't go very far. A lot of family time. I uh, had a birthday over the holiday, which Happy was... Happy birthday. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Wait, was it a significant number or one of those mid-numbers that Just you don't even want to bring up? One of those mid-numbers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't want to don't pry. Another one of those years. Okay. What about you? Well, funny you should ask. Um, I went to the other side of the world. Yes, you did. All right. We, um, the week before Christmas... Um, Katie, myself, Cammie, and Zach, we went to, uh, Cape Town, South Africa. Okay. Which as it turns out, isn't easy to get there from here. No, I didn't think so. No, it's like a 14 hour flight to Dubai and then a 12 hour flight from Dubai down to Cape Town. Okay. So being in a plane for 24 hours is, it gets to the point where you're on the plane for so long that you go from mild discomfort to... Much discomfort to excruciating to to it's almost absurd, and you just start giggling. Like I've been on a plane for twenty hours, you just start. You know, it doesn't even make sense. You don't settle in and start to feel like home or anything like that. No, there's nothing where you you, you just feel like it's just uh, you know you've been pressurized for twenty four hours, wow. and so you just start you know kind of curling up in a little tiny ball and and giggling, but. Um, but it, we went on a photo safari at a conservation game reserve okay. about four hours outside of Cape Town, and it was epic. Hmm. There were uh, lions and elephants and rhinos, and, and um, we, we on this reserve, like you enter the reserve, which is like the size of Cumberland County, okay. you go through this big fence, and there's a giant sign that says, don't leave your vehicle, and we had a driver, but... Uh, uh, don't leave your vehicle. There are, you know, killer animals everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, it's a little bit like Jurassic Park. Oh, <laughs> boy. Right? Without the dinosaurs. And when you check in, they walk you to your little hut in the game reserve. Okay. There was not a Marriott within sight. Oh. So there's these little huts. And you're told you can't leave your hut without one of the rangers escorting you. Okay. So... 
Because so, so you let me picture this. So you had a hut that you stayed in right. on the reserve. Well, yeah. So the reserve or in the reserve. In so. the reserve, there's a group of huts with a little restaurant. And oh. so all the people stay there and you eat your meals and then you go out in these special jeeps out into the reserve twice a day on these safaris. Oh my goodness. And at any given point there are lion elephants and all kinds of stuff. Wow. And here's the funny thing. They had mentioned, yeah, don't don't go to your hut and especially at night you need to have a ranger and um and Katie and Cammy went back to their hut after <gasps> dinner by themselves, right? Oh. A little bit of a rule breaker thing. And uh, as it turns out they were, as they put it, attacked by a black mamba snake. Oh, no. I don't like that at all. And there's a video. So what happened is they saw this snake, and it was, as it turns out, a deadly poisonous snake. Oh, my. About 10 feet from them, and they knew enough to kind of back up, and Cammy, of course, had to videotape it. Of course. And so they're watching it 10 feet away, and 10 feet away, the black mamba snake looked kind of harmless. And then the snake, <laughs> yeah, but the snake know, stood harmless. up, the snake stood up straight up like you see with cobras, oh, right? Weird. Which you don't typically see many sta- snakes doing that. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, look at that. The snake is up. And then all of a sudden the snake <laughs> lunged at them and started, nope. and all of a sudden you saw the video camera, you know, kind of hit the ground going, quick, <laughs> run. <laughs> oh, no. And then a ranger came out. Yeah, so there was that. Oh, my God. They could have been killed. I know. And then at one point, we were by a, a herd of elephants, which how often do you hear that? Yeah. And, you know, the, the Jeep guide was like, hey, we're approaching the elephants. Everyone stay within the Jeep frame and we'll be safe. And he goes, you know, you can tell an elephant is agitated where if they perspire by between in their forehead where their eyes are, mm-hmm. if it looks like it's moist and they're shaking their head left to right, that means they're agitated, they're about to attack. He goes, we never really see that. And all of a sudden we look over, (laughs) and this elephant (laughs) right in front of us is like dripping from his forehead. Oh no. And the elephant is shaking his head, and it's like, excuse me, Mr. Guide, you know that thing you just described? And all of a sudden the elephant went, and started kind of chasing the Jeep. Wow. Yeah, so we had that Were you scared? Well, it was an elephant chasing us. <laughs> That's uh, a yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it, I wrote a column wow. about it Did in, you? in this, okay. week's, uh, this week's forecast. You can see that online. Wow. But I'm not a big hunter, mm-hmm. right? So I, I'm not adamant. I, I think hunting for food, I think, is, you know, is, is, yeah, and as a person who enjoys, enjoys a cheeseburger or chicken sandwich, <laughs> I can't say that I'm not for, you know, being a carnivore and right. eating meat. Right. I'm just really against trophy hunting. Yeah, sport hunting. And especially, you know, you know, and when you go out to a game reserve and you see thousands of animals and you see a zebra with a newborn or you see an elephant with a small elephant and you think there is a group of guys out there with big guns mm-hmm. just waiting to shoot them mm-hmm. for no other reason to impress their friends. Or... Or feel better about themselves in some way. Yeah, if you can imagine that. Yeah, yeah I, I don't. I, under, I don't understand the impulse. I, yeah. I really don't. And so I mentioned that in this week's column. But going to uh, South Africa was just fascinating. That's cool. And then from there, we stayed. We went back to Cape Town, and our hotel 
was next to a museum that was called the Slave Lodge. Mm. And as it turns out, in the 1600s and 1700s, Cape Town was kind of, uh, sadly, uh, import-export hub for slavery. Yeah. And thousands of slaves were shipped in and shipped out. And mm. just this really uh, both tragic but profoundly somber history mm-hmm. having to do with South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were there for a week, and then we went to Dubai on the way back. Ooh, tell me about Dubai. Have you heard anything about Dubai? I, I love their architecture. I look at pictures all the time. Yeah. That's pretty much all I've done, though. I haven't really... Well, Dubai 30 years ago was like a speck of sand in the, right. in the, in the Persian Gulf, and it was nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then after oil, which really fueled their growth literally and figuratively, uh, it just popped up. Mm-hmm. And now it is this unbelievable metropolis where the world's tallest building, the Burj uh, Khalifa, we yes. It's twice as big as the Empire State Building. Did you yeah. go all the way to the top? Went uh, Well, the observation is about 90% to the top. That's what, yeah, so we yeah. went to the observation mm-hmm. level. And when you stand at the bottom looking at it, it doesn't look big. It looks something 10 times bigger than big. Yeah. Infinite? Yeah, it looks, it looks freakish, like you're in a cartoon yeah. and you're looking at something otherworldly because mm-hmm. it's twice as big as the Empire State Building. Yeah. So you look up and you just kind of, Go, that's unbelievable how yeah. big that is. I watched a documentary of its building. Oh, once. It's, it was fascinating. Yeah. So everything in Dubai is, you know, the world's biggest mall. Mm-hmm. We went to the Emirates Mall and there's a skating rink and there's a shark tank and you go through a shark tunnel and you're like a foot away from sharks. And wow. Everything there. Is, and then they built this island system called the Palm, which mm-hmm. has all these finger mm-hmm. islands. Yep. And uh, that's fascinating. And then we did a dune buggy thing out in the desert. Cool. So Dubai is fascinating. But the thing that's a little disconcerting is when you're flying in, when we flew over the first time, the airline has this map system Mm -hmm. on the the, front of the seat. And at one point, we were flying directly over Baghdad, Iraq, which... You know, 30,000 feet from Baghdad, where Mm. some of the worst American fighting and some of the worst kind of horrific human rights issues. And that it was just, and so you have Dubai that's like 80, 90 miles from Iran. Mm -hmm. And that whole zone is between Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan. And then you have this little thing, Dubai. Yeah. Which is tiny, but it's insulated from some of the worst places in the world. And so you, you have this sensation, you're in an airplane going at 34,000 feet, flying over some of the most horrific places mm-hmm. just below you, that you're like, there's fighting and awful things and beheading and crazy yeah. things. And then all of a sudden the pilot goes, okay, we're coming into Dubai, boom. <laughs> and, you, and you're in this kind of this insulated thing. Hmm. Where there's like Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Rolls Royces racing each other to the mall. Yeah. It, it, it's a bizarre feeling. And yeah. it's very Americanized where, you know, all the American restaurants are there. Mm-hmm. You know, we had lunch one day at the California Pizza Kitchen. And then oh, the other nice. day we, oh yeah. We are a lot the, of the signs in English too? Um, yeah. English is, is uh, a lot of the signs are in Arabic, but English is, is 
you can comfortably get around with English, both in terms of the signs and, you know, um, but it's a fascinating place. Mm. I just don't know where it goes because well, it's so dependent on oil and so dependent yeah. on money. Well, from what I read, um, they knew oil at some point in time was going to run out. So they decided to build this beautiful city that offered so much fun, entertainment, yeah. relaxation, whatever, adventure to the rest of the world and make it a tourist destination, which I think they've succeeded at already. Yeah, well, it's it's epic. Mm. It, it is something and uh, direct flights from Boston Logan Airport. Wow. All you got to wow. do is sit there for 14 hours hey, and fly yeah. over fly over Baghdad and uh and you're oh, there. Wow. Yeah, and so we just got back a couple of days ago and then the the downside is it's a 9-hour um, time zone change. Oh yeah. gosh, yeah. So I'm still waking up at three in the morning. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the first few days we got back, I'd wake up every night at one in the morning, going, "Oh, it's time to get up." And then the next couple of days, I wake up at three. And I think this morning I woke up at four. <laughs> oh wow! And it may be like next week before I can sleep through to six. Yep, could be. Yeah, but the whole thing is uh, sounds like a great trip. Yeah, you know where I'm planning next December? I'm trying to pressure Katie into going. Oh, tell me. Antarctica. Oh, wow. You know you know why? Why? Uh, it is the only continent I haven't been to. Oh, yes. Oh. So, Do they have hotels in Antarctica? Uh, they don't have people in Antarctica. <laughs> they're, they're, they have 200 scientists living in tents yes. out at the Murtaugh uh, Science. Of, you know, there's nothing in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. That's the funny thing about Antarctica. You know, they have ships that go down there in expeditions where you can get off and, you know, play with the seals. Right. But there's no, there, there is no California pizza yeah. kitchen. Yeah, there's, there's, there's just scientists. So there's nothing there. <laughs> and so it's a little bit of a hard sell because you have to leave out of uh, South America, Buenos Aires. And then you have to, you know, it's a 10-day cruise to get to the bottom of the world. Mm. And then when you get there, there's nothing there. I got to admit, I would like to do that. I would go it for the It is intriguing. Cruise. You'll have to get back in touch with our friend um, with the Humane Climate Institute. Oh, right, right. Yes. I'm yeah. not sure if they do the Arctic, the North, or the South. I don't know. But I, I think there's a climate change that's happening on, on both both yeah. ends of the earth. Yeah. Maybe. But for those who believe in that kind of thing, Deb. Yes, for those who believe. But, uh, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, 2017, it's going to be a good year, right? It definitely is. Sure is. Right. We've got that uh, inaugural thing in a couple. Uh, yes, couple. we do. Are you going, by the way? No, I'm going to be home uh, manning the station. Ray's going to be uh, recording a show from there. So, Ray Richardson is going to yeah. the inaugural? Yes, he is. Yeah. Front row seat? Does he does he have any kind I of? I don't. He know. was an early supporter. Yeah. Th- you know? But he thought it'd be cool to do the show there for a few days. I think it's interesting. Yeah. Do, do we know if Governor LePage is going? I don't know. I kind of thought since he, you know, he was late to the Trump party because yeah. at first he was kind of I think a Christie guy. Guy, yeah. They they both. Uh, they share similar traits. Interest in donuts and <laughs> what do they share? Yeah, interesting, yeah, bombastic traits. But yeah, I figured, but LePage came around and supported Trump, so I figured maybe yeah. there'd be a little something for him. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard. Well. But if I do, I'll let you know. Yeah. But aside from the abject fear that I'm feeling and many, many Americans are feeling. Are you feeling fear, Steve? 
I am I am scared uh, witless. Really? I am. Yeah. I am. I am. I am scared. I am scared. Like you know, I want to just curl up. Wow. Yeah. Well, then maybe you should take That's another flight to uh, Dubai. I, oh. I I, I, may, I may need to take a flight somewhere. <laughs> I may be the first resident in Antarctica. I may just yeah. <laughs> quick i need to get down there i need to be somewhere safe but we'll, we'll have to talk politics in another show sure because this is nothing but a feel-good show it's the first show of the year that's right we've got nothing but optimism that's right and we have this uh, very interesting interview with a a friend and a, a person who i've known for over a decade as a a teacher in the army school system but also the boys varsity soccer coach uh, why don't we go into the interview that we did with Mike Hegarty? Okay. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve on News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. Here's my interview with Mike Hegarty. Welcome back. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve on News Talk WLOB. Put me in, Coach. We have one of Maine's most uh, accomplished coaches, as well as teachers, as well as community, uh, you know, being involved in the community. Mike Hager, you welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Have you, have you ever had theme music introduce you before? I have not. Yeah. Put me in coach. <laughs> I don't know if you have much baseball uh, connection, but it's mostly, you know, soccer that you, you're, I topped you're, out at Little League. Yeah. <laughs> I topped out in like third grade when a ground ball hit my tooth and knocked it out. Ever since then, I could I could bat and I could throw, but if the ball came towards me, I was like, ah. <laughs> so, welcome to the show. Mike is the uh, is both uh, varsity boys varsity coach at Yarmouth High School for soccer, as well as uh, teacher. Um, and I've known Mike for probably a decade, decade anyway. In, yeah. in, in, anyway, yeah. And uh, obviously, want to talk about the great success you've had and the Yarmouth school system has had in sports. But why don't we start a little bit about your background and where you grew up and then how you first got involved with sports. And then we'll talk about athletics and what's going on here in Maine. Sure. Uh, I was born in Massachusetts, actually. So I'll never be a Mainer, sadly. Oh, gosh. Where, where in Mass? Lemonster. Leo Minster. Not quite to Worcester. Between right. Boston and Worcester. And uh, my father was from Somerville. My folks met at Boston College in graduate school and we settled there for a bit. But my mother was from Portland. Grew up on Woodford Street. And had a, you know, French Catholic family from Maine that drew her back home. So okay. we, we moved back when I was three-ish, and I've been a Mainer ever since. Still not a Mainer, though. Still not a Mainer. Only never here never since... will be. Three of, I have five, there's five kids in my family, and three of us were born in Mass, and two were born in Maine. Wow. You, so, you probably don't admit that too often, do you? Not when I, unless I have to. Unless, yeah. unless you're asked directly on a big radio show <laughs> like Tide Smart right. Talk. <laughs> so where'd you end up going to college after coming back up here in Maine? I went to St. Anselm College, a little Division II school in Manchester, New Hampshire. Played soccer there and loved it. In fact, it's coming. We, we were chatting before we went on air about things coming to full circle. I'm taking my junior son to go meet the basketball coach there on the end of the month. So it would be really exciting to have one of my kids go there. But, uh, yeah, St. Anselm College was a great place to be. And I got out of there in 1990. I worked in a psychiatric hospital. People joked that maybe they gave me free room board or something if I worked there during the day. But um, And then I volunteered in the school that was part of the hospital. And 
really loved the teaching bit. So I went back to graduate school at USM. And when you studied in college, uh, was there any interest in teaching, or what, what did you graduate with, or it was only oh, afterwards that you started thinking about teaching as maybe a career? Uh, a little bit. I started off as a math major, and then I was in Calculus three with five other people that were thinking at a different level than I was. <laughs> and I realized I don't like math as much as them. Um, so I switched over to psychology. I loved the, I always loved the coaching bit. Um, I knew I was going to work with kids at some point. I'm, I think I find it a lot more rewarding to work with kids and adults. Uh, it's a lot easier to be much easier to be patient with kids. Um, but I, I knew there was going to be some coaching in my future. I wasn't sure about the teaching, but both my parents were social workers. So I was leaning towards that, to be honest with you. Um, and that's the psychiatric hospital was, I worked with some kids who'd been abused and had some interesting past and I loved that. But, uh, again, when I went to the school that was in the hospital, I really saw a different, I saw the kids in a different light and realized I could do a little bit of both some teaching and some counseling and some coaching and all that kind of stuff. And it just, it fell into place there. And then what was the next step that led to you uh, coming up to Yarmouth? It, I was coaching at Deering High School. And Yarmouth was the closest school to Portland, so I could still coach. I didn't do any research about it being what? a great school district. I was, I fell into Yarmouth, luckily. So literally, I looked at the commuting time, but it was between Gorm and Yarmouth where you had to apply for a placement. And the traffic through Westbrook <laughs> to get to Gorm was the problem. 295 was easier, and I lucked out. I so history there. could have been changed if uh, on that day the traffic wasn't so bad to Gorm. It really, I, I think back about that all the time. And, and one of the first people I met when I walked into Yarmouth was Rich Smith. Right. And another one, Liz Fleury. And so Rich ended up being the best man at my wedding. And Liz is, is a dear friend whom I taught with for 10 years and learned more from working with Liz than any course I ever took. So and it Rich was is a coach luck. too, right? He just retired after 28 years. And coaching yeah. uh, the girls. The girls, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, he just, th he didn't coach this fall. He re although he still loves coaching, he retired from the high school, but he still coaches and went down to the middle school so he could still coach. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. We have uh, coach and teacher Mike Haggerty uh, from Yarmouth. Uh, so at Yarmouth, you're not, you're the high school boys varsity coach, but mm. You teach in the middle school, right? I teach seventh grade math and English. How did that work out? Because typically, I, you know, I, I should say that uh, two of my kids had you as a teacher, uh, A-plus grades teacher, teacher Mike. But how did that work, that teaching in one level and coaching another, was it just the opening at the time, and then it was just you fell into it and you liked that grade? Or? Uh, well, it... When I went back to graduate school, you had to declare what age you wanted to teach. And I had had a math background, but I liked to read and write. So I decided, based on my work at the hospital, it used to be called Jacksonbrook, now it's Spring Harbor, but it was Jacksonbrook. My work there, I liked the like four-year-old to 12-year-old age group to work with. Right. And so I decided to get certified as a K-8 teacher. Now, they've changed the certifications. You can become like K-6 or a middle school or a high school. But back then, 24 years ago, it was, I was, I became K-8 certified, which means I can teach anything kindergarten through eighth grade, any subject, you know, and of course, back then, everything up through fifth grade was self-contained. You had to teach everything. Right. And I just liked that age, knowing that I already had some high school coaching experience. To me, it was the best of both worlds. You know, I could, I could coach an older group of kids that were really committed and wanted to get better every day, but I could also teach some young kids that kind of kept me young too. Fascinating. So, so let's, uh, let's talk about Yarmouth, uh, in terms of your career, what year was it that you first started at Yarmouth and took over as the head soccer coach? And 
Um, how many, you know, I, I, I don't think any program should be judged on championships or specific awards because I, I really agree. think it's yeah. the value of the program is how the kids are prepared and character and all that. Mm. But if you have all of that and you also have skill and you also have kids who are really committed, winning is also something that's, uh, I think, positive, right? Yeah, it's a byproduct. And, you know, we, we, our goal is never to win. It's just to play our best. But we, like you said, we have enough talented kids that when we play our best, we usually are right. winning. Um, so I got that in 97. I, I had been teaching in Yarmouth. I did my student teaching in 1992 and 93 that, that year of grad school that gets you certified. Um, and I had been coaching in Deering, at Deering High School and teaching in Yarmouth. And in 95, I just realized the splitting between the two towns was, I, I felt like I was shortchanging, you know, leaving school early to get to practice late. Right. I just, so I, re, I left in 95 from Deering. In 96, I finished up my master's. In 97, the boys' job opened up. I, again, luckily, fell into an opening. Wow. And 97 is when we started. And have been there ever since, won a bunch of games, won some state titles, but have had some amazing student athletes to come through. So this will, you'll, you'll be coming into in the fall, your 20th? 21st, just completed, just completed. Yeah, 97 counts as one, right? So so how many uh, championships? And We've uh, won eight at Yarmouth in 20 years, eight state titles. That's yeah. a pretty good ratio, right? Yeah, it's not bad. It, you know, <laughs> speaking of math, if my math was better, yeah, you know, you know, it's forty percent, right? It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, wow. four fifths. You're right. Yeah, so it, it's it's again, it's we also luckily fell into it. A, a couple things really happened simultaneously that were good fortune. Um, Dale Wing, who had been the assistant coach there, um, it's ironic. We the both we we were the two that applied, and he said to me before the interview, "I still want to coach, whether you get it or not. Whether I get it, let's let's make sure we still work together." Right. And he's one of the most amazing men I've ever met and worked with. So I, I got the job. I, I simply had more head coaching experience, I think, was the difference. And, and I taught in the school district, which was also a bonus. Sure. But Dale stayed on and then was the JV coach for a few years. But then we realized his value was really training goalies. You have a son that's a goalie. You know, right. if they get goalie training every day, that's a big difference. And, and the funny thing is, is that goalie training, in many ways, there's some common elements with the field position. But... It's very specific. Very. It, and, and if yeah. your goalies are only, you know, practicing with the field players, you know, the footwork, the hands, the positioning, you really don't get that. They don't get better. And, right. that, you know, that's – the kids want to get better, whether it's school or coaching. Kids want to see progress. We all want to see progress. So we convinced our booster club, again, the benefit of being in Yarmouth, we have very involved boosters to add on a stipend and position. So Dale became the full-time goalie coach. So we get our kids get goalie training every single. It's a huge difference. He sent five or six kids on to play college goalies. The most recent and most successful two have been Division One. Nate Dunlap back in the '90s played at Cornell, and Chris uh, Kanab right. just finished a wonderful career at Bryant. So we've had two of our goalies played, and that's because I, I do think it's because of Dale Wing. Yeah, yeah and Chris Kanab. He 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 had that uh, throwing <clears throat> thing, right? We won it. We won a Western Maine now Southern Maine championship on that play. I know <laughs> it. It was you know. 
on that play, he was so of his mechanics. First of all, he was a really he was and is a tall kid, mm. but he had the mechanics down where he could do a sideline throw in about forty or fifty yards, as good as a corner kick. Yeah, and you used to even if it was uh, a sideline throw in near the the offensive corner, you would bring him out a goal, mm. drop a defenseman back, <laughs> he would run eighty yards, 80. do the throw in, and it would be even better than a corner. And thank kick. goodness he was quick. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then he would run back. It was the funniest thing. Well, I, I was, someone was sitting, uh, we played Falmouth that day, one of our big rivals, and someone was sitting next to a friend from Falmouth, and Chris was running up, and the guy, the guy was coming, and this Haggerty with that stupid play again, and that was the play that ended up, you know, winning the, winning the championship. Yeah. And they had a long throw that the kids did all the things that were right off of the throw, and that, that play resulted in the winning goal in overtime. Yeah, that, that is uh, so funny. <laughs> so I want to get back to the teams and all that, but uh, you were talking about teaching and, and coaching kids rather than adults, and, and something kind of stuck with me that, you know, I have two teenagers and our oldest daughter is in her 20s, but in your 20 years or 23 years of teaching at different levels, um, what have you noticed both as a teacher and a coach, and I think they're different roles, so you may have different perspectives, in terms of kids today, because the term millennial, and it's an often used and mostly in a negative context, is, oh, yeah, the kids today, they're on their phone, they're entitled, they're not working hard. And so as parents and in society at large, it may, you know, the, 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 the context may be kind of situational, but as a person who's taught for 20-something years, you have you know, kids yourself that are teenagers. So you've mm. seen as a parent, you've seen as a teacher, and you've seen as a coach. Um, what's up with those millennials? It's it's funny. Is it, it different? It it is different. It is but, different. But I, you'd like to think it's progress, right? <laughs> Go back to oh. I, this. Believe me, the social media isn't progress. No, that, that, that's, that's crazy. Right. But you'd like to, you know, the we all, you know, yearn for the simple times. I tell people I was so glad I didn't grow up with social media. You know, and I taught, I started teaching in 19, I got out of school in 1990. The internet was barely being developed. Right. So you couldn't search unless you could spell everything right and had the right dot and the right colon and the right parentheses and the right search and you know, all that stuff. Now you can get it close to the right spelling and get whatever you want. Or you can just do voice acting. Voice acting, right. Yeah, you don't even have to spell it. You spell just it talk. Anymore. So, see, you know, I, I tell the kids, I call it teaching pre and post internet. So I, you know, because we really didn't use it that much in the early 90s. Right. But- Set the kids, you know, I don't know, kids, I haven't seen a, a drastic change in how they are. It's what they're exposed to and what that does to them. It's a really, I am so glad that I wasn't exposed to all the stuff they're exposed to now. Right. Um, it, it is good and bad. I think kids are still the same. Kids, they, you know, they want to be, an adolescent still is in that really funny time of trying to become independent, yet trying to fit in, yet wanting to have a relationship with, with adults and be respected and be liked and, and, and learn, yet wanting to figure it out on their own. That part hasn't changed. What they're exposed to and what they're not ready to handle or see or understand has changed drastically. And it happens quicker. The internet mm. speeds things up where it used to be when you were in high school or I was in high school you know, day by day, week by week, you know, things would evolve in the lunchroom. One day you're yeah. sitting at one table <laughs> and then a week later you're like, hey, I, I sat with this table and it happened at kind of a slower speed. And now somebody posts something it's on Facebook mm. and in the morning and by afternoon you're sitting by yourself and 
you, you don't have time to kind of yeah. socially. Socially, I would say it, it, it could be viewed as more destructive. Educationally, developmentally, man, are these kids wired differently than we are? I right. mean, there, there was a book written years ago. I can't remember the author. You know, called them digital. We were they're digital citizens. We're digital immigrants. Those of us that may be above forty. Right. You know that. But I, all the time, my, my seven-year-old could use my smartphone better than I could before she could read. You know, years ago when I first got a smartphone, it, it made sense to her. It was easy to her. And, and I still, we have a tech coordinator at the middle school who's fabulous. I ask the kids first. Wow. <laughs> if there's a concern with something. So I do think these kids are wired differently in some respects, but they need to be. The world is different. The world is just different. But how, from your experience, how do you see, you know, I agree that they're wired differently, but but years ago, I was an adjunct professor for nine years, and so from my experience, that it used to be, both in the uh, secondary and in college levels, a lot of education was about memorization. You know, today we're going to study history, this happened in 1842, mm-hmm. we're going to study biology and chemistry, and there's numbers, and in math there's ratios. We're at a point now where virtually all of the knowledge in the world, you know, I'm holding up my iPhone, <laughs> is in this little thing. Is there. Yeah. And so the paradigm of kids learning to memorize something is is a little bit changing. And it's evolving just a little bit in that it's less important of what you can memorize because you access the information. Mm. But the key link, if you look at education as being prepared for life or being prepared to be a, uh, an active citizen and paying bills and being involved in your community and then vocationally working, it's communication skills. It's negotiation skills, not in the technical sense, but you know, you negotiate everything with friends and relationships. Hey, if you take the trash out, we'll do, you know, Mm. and I see a real, gulf between, you know, where some kids are today in those kind of social interactive skills because their their communication skills are so quick on the internet and social media that, you know, I interview kids very often out of college and they come in and they've got a great degree and they've got a great GPA, but they can't talk their way into the front door. Do they look you in the eye? <laughs> no, they don't look me in the eye. They can't talk in the front door. They don't. You know, I asked this one kid, yeah, you know, tell me about what you know about our business. You know, I really don't know. Really? You could have just, you know, done a little Google search, couldn't you? And it was like something's changing. Well, you you hit on, I think, two different things there. You're right. I think socially things have changed. Um, Educationally, we do much less memorization. We don't need to anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I laugh at the fact that I used to have all my friends' phone numbers memorized. I knew twenty different phone numbers, and would, and now you don't need. I don't memorize any numbers. I don't I barely even know, know my own. own. I know, right? right. Because <laughs> so, you you push a you, you push an icon. Call home. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. I remember my phone number from when I was five years. I was in Needham, and yeah. it was six one seven four 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 two one three four. Yeah, seven seven four three seven six zero. My home phone. Yeah, I, I know. I in, in the Needham townhouse <laughs> of pizza, you know, forty something years ago. Yeah. And it's so funny how that, you know, today, or even, you know, calling director assistance, when was the last time that happened? Yeah. I don't even I think don't. if we called right now, there'd be anyone it, it there. Might not be there. They'd be asleep. So, but that, so educationally, I actually, that's one of the things I like about teaching middle school is I, you know, I tell the kids all the time, I feel badly that we're asking you to be good at seven or eight different things in one day. And I get to focus on two um, with all the courses they take. But I've, I've tried to convince the kids that 
there is a certain amount, I think, of cultural literacy. You, you have to have a well you know, I'm a big fan of liberal arts education up to a certain point before right. you want to specialize. Trying to explain to my son the difference between a BA and a BS, for example. Recently, we had that talk last week. Right. Um, but in middle school, trying to t under tell the kids that if you have a good base understanding of a lot of different things, you can tie some things together. You can make some connections. An educated person should be able to make some connections. We just, we read the Christmas Carol or listened to the Christmas Carol prior to vacation. And the, the kids daily were hearing allusions to a Christmas Carol and they felt pretty cool about that. They felt pretty smart about it. They could make those connections. But the other piece that you talked about was that social piece. Right. That's really, a, that I think has been a bigger change. You know, if you go to any high school cafeteria now, kids are spending as much time looking down as they are talking to one another on their phone, you know, and they might be texting someone at the same table. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just <laughs> The listen. social piece, I think, is different. I just listened to, uh, it wasn't a TED talk, but it was a similar kind of talk, and the, the speaker was saying that uh, dopamine uh, in the brain, which is uh, chemical reacts to both alcohol and drugs, there's a similar reaction to the stimulus from social media and from the phone. And that feeling where and I think we've all felt it as adults and, you know, especially for kids, you know, your phone vibrates or pings and you just got to see who you texts like you. You have, to see, you have yeah. to see it where if you don't, you're missing out on something and it releases uh, dopamine. Yeah. And we have this whole generation of young people now that are so dependent to it. They're sleeping with their phones, they're yeah. going to sleep. And, you know, the, the hypothesis of this talk was... Uh, it's ultimately really destructive. You know, like anything else, everything can be okay in moderation. moderation you know, yeah. if you have a glass of wine, okay, that's fine. You have yeah. a glass of wine. If you drink two bottles, <laughs> that may not be the best choice. Yeah. But, you know, I worry about that. And I also worry about what's, what mechanism there is to let the pendulum swing back. Mm. And, you know, I, I, you know my, my oldest daughter, this story from a couple of years ago, I asked her if she had talked to her cousin lately who lived in Scarborough, you know, 10 miles away. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah she's doing great. And I go, hey, you know, how, how did she sound? Or how did she look? Oh, I didn't see her. I said, well, how did she, how'd she sound on the phone? And she said, uh, oh, I didn't talk to her. I said, how do you know she's okay? Well, I sent her a note on Facebook. Yeah. And, uh, How's it going? Great. <laughs> and how do you know how somebody is? Yeah. The whole idea of empathy is being with people, talking yeah. to people, looking them in the eye, going, hey, what do you think about this? Is it, you know, so for my daughter, it, I'm not singling her out because I think it's a, a generational thing. She really had the sensation she was keeping up with her cousin. Yeah. And she hadn't seen for years. How she, oh, she's doing great. How do you know? I said, how are you doing? She said, great. <laughs> Re meanwhile, she could, who knows? She could have a health issue. She could have, you know. Yeah. But isn't that what's great about sports though? Yeah. You know, you can get those relationships. Now, and I also think that's what's great about being a classroom teacher. I mean, I, I don't remember necessarily what my favorite teachers taught me. I just remember how they made me feel. So my favorite teacher to this day is Miss Keeley, a sixth grade teacher who was really tough on me, but I knew she thought highly of me. And I, I, I don't remember what I learned in sixth grade, right. but I do remember how she made me feel. And I, I think the, that's why I, I got a kick out of the online school trend that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, people thought that's where we were going. I said, I'm not sure. I don't think so because the relationship piece I think is too vital and kids as much as they are attracted to social media, when they make a connection with another person or a teacher, I'd like to think that can be lifelong lasting. And that's where sports is great. You cannot bring your phone on the court and the phone can't shoot for you. 
the phone can find the information for you in the classroom. Right. But sports and those relationships and that interdependence with teams, I don't think I, I thankfully get a lot of great emails back from alumni, especially when a season's going well like the one we just had. And inevitably, they don't talk about the games they won or lost. They still, you know, they keep me up on their teammates and the stuff they learned, the stuff they still remember. And it wasn't about the wins and losses. It really was about the lessons learned. And that's that part of, of sports. I've always seen sports as part of a kid's education. For me, the most vital part. I learned more from sports than I learned from any class I ever took. Can I so. tell you something funny? This <laughs> last season, we have uh, Mike Haggerty here from uh, Yarmouth. He's a head boys soccer coach, also teaches in the middle school. Uh, I think it was either the quarter or the semifinal game, and I apologize, I don't know, but you guys were either tied going into OT or you were behind one goal with a few minutes left. And for some reason, I was walking the way the track is at the Yarmouth Field as the running track goes behind the bench, and I was walking behind, and you know, and uh, you were talking to the team during a timeout or in between uh, uh, the regulation and OT. And, you know, there's all this, you know, the season's on the line. You're within a few minutes of either you're going on. <laughs> this wasn't the championship game. And I remember just as I'm walking by overhearing you saying something like, hey, we've trained for this. Do your best. Have fun out there. <laughs> there was none of this, you know, there was none of this, guys, we've got to do this. Yeah. It was... You're, you've worked for months, yeah. and it was have fun. And I think you mentioned something about trust your teammates. Just you know, yeah. rely. And it was just I was motivated. I was about <laughs> I was ready to run out on the field and say, yeah, exactly what Coach Haggerty said. <laughs> well, you know, thankfully we've been in a lot of those games, and our kids are pretty comfortable in in tight games, and they're really comfortable. If it was overtime, it would have been the Greeley game. Right. Because we, uh, and we scored late to right. tie it up. That we was had, it. That was the game. We, we had played so well, we just gave up. It's funny because uh, they had scored two goals that were kind of scrummy, not great. One was a deflection and, and we tied it up on a scrummy deflected goal, you know, that, right. that beat the goalie accidentally, if you will. And we were all, the coaches, we were all feeling like there was new life. This is great. And we weren't psyched about winning. We were just like, hey, we get to practice more. The coaches get, and soccer is a different sport. Basketball, you can call timeout. Baseball, there's between innings. Football, you can call every play. You know, soccer is such a player's game that most coaches that I know that have been successful in soccer, they really like practice more than games. We have such little control over the games. We can sub, but not even when we want to. We have to wait till the ball goes out of bounds and it's our throw at the right time in the right place. Right. And, all, and there's no timeouts. And you have, you know, three minutes between, you know, that, that time and the overtime. But... I do remember that game because I, did, I didn't feel nervous going in overtime. Yeah. I felt really confident, and, and hopefully the kids felt that way, that they'd been down this road before, that they knew they were better, and that that little lucky bounce that we got, I think, was a result of just hard work. <laughs> you know, but well, it was fun. It is fun. It's, that, and you have it's a kid fun. named Labrie on the team. Labrie doesn't hurt. And no, his older, bro- his older brother <laughs> was one of, uh, was an exceptional student athlete and, yeah. uh, Eric yeah. and, and the younger one, you know, who's, who's Ian's in, coming up, who's in the pipeline. I asked her to have more kids, but she, <laughs> that's so funny. We have Mike Haggerty in the, in the studio here. He is the head, uh, boys soccer coach and you just won the, uh, the championship this last fall. Yeah. yeah. So talk about, you know, we, we talked about athletics, um, and we talked about, uh, you know, kids these days. I actually, when I'm interviewing people, it's not the sole criteria, but if I see a young person who's had some experience in athletics, 
whether or not they've been a superstar or not, but if they've been on teams and if they're comfortable being coached, if they understand team concepts, if they, mm. I have found many, and I think there's all kinds of surveys where, you know, CEOs or executives is a high percentage that have played athletics a good part of their life because yeah. there's many of the same skills. As you approach coaching at an exceptional level, and here in Yarmouth for the last 20 years, you're in your 21st season, what, how do you balance the expectations on a program with, you know, every year you have a bunch of kids who are trying out for varsity. There are kids in the pipeline. In fact, I have a grandson who's three who tomorrow <laughs> starts his first soccer clinic at the Rose School. Yep. And so... You know, you may see him in in thirteen years, in thirteen yeah. years, but mm. in a town where there's been so much success in Yarmouth, Falmouth, Cape Elizabeth, really, there's a number of schools in Southern mm. Maine that have done have have pretty good athletic programs. Do you feel any pressure relative to how the team does or doesn't do, or is it really about just getting the best student athletes out there and preparing them the best mm. and accept where you know the kind of the games turn out? Well, I, I think that's actually. The beauty I've seen in Yarmouth is that I've never felt pressure to win. Um, you know, there, and there was a stretch early. We won my first year in '97. We didn't win again till like 2004, and there was never—I never got pressure, felt pressure from parents or administrators or the town at all about this need to win. Um, I think most of the people in Yarmouth do understand where education, where athletics fall as part of your education. Now, the other piece. That one of the reasons we have won, I think, um, is not because we're exceptional high school coaches. I think it's also we've done a really good job as a community tying our youth program into the same philosophies that we want to have in our in our high school program. You know, you know, John Torres, a mutual friend of sure. ours from town. We have something we develop called the Clipper Way in the high school that kind of guides our kids, our high school athletes, with decision making on and off the field. Well, when John was president of the Colts, he loved it so much, he took it and created the Colts way. So ours had five components. He expanded it to 10 and made it a little more user-friendly. So right now, we feel like kids who are nine years old through 18 get the same message about doing your best, about trusting your teammates, about and, and none of it's about winning and telling the kids that if you do all those little things and worry about you know what's happening next and the winning will take care of itself. And that's something I learned from my high school and college coaches for years ago, that how you sell that, I don't think it's a hard sell, but it takes that pressure off. You know, win or lose, just do your best. And hopefully the winning will take care of itself. But we've got that message from nine years old up. And even now, starting clinics, like you said, with three-year-olds. Right. You know, it's, it's hard because my wife thinks I'm absolutely crazy to want to coach three-year-olds on Saturday morning. <clears throat> it doesn't see the need for it. doesn't see the point to it. <laughs> In some ways, that may be the critical step. You you're know, darned it, if you it, do, you're it, darned if you don't. If if kids aren't <clears throat> active at that age, they don't. Then they're not going to be active at four and five. And if they're not active at four and five, they're not. You're going to lose them in the yeah. system at seven or eight. And the foundation pieces. It's funny. We the the premier club I coach for GPS has a nice relationship with Bayern Munich in Germany, one of the most successful international clubs. And they their philosophy is they put their best coaches at the U10 to U14 age groups because they want to set that foundation. And I and I, I feel pretty good about that because we've spent a lot of time. I think in the if you look at a calendar year, I spend more hours working with the Colts youth program than I do on my high school varsity team. Wow. And they feed off one another. And 
So the importance of that 10 to 14-year-old age group athletically, but you're right, if they don't even start earlier than that to get ready for that. But there are, and, and that's actually getting back to teaching. That's what I feel really important about middle school is you can set some kids on some really good foundations to get ready for high school and to be successful when the, you know, the, the GPA doesn't count in middle school, when, the, when there's no permanent transcript to go on to, to require them to have to get an A or whatever. So I think those age groups is probably why I'm attracted to teaching that age group and, and doing some volunteer coaching of that age group. That 10 to 14-year-old, what happens there does, I think, dictate what happens in high school too. Well, what's your philosophy in terms of young athletes specializing in one sport or, or having diversity in, you know, and, yeah. you know, and specifically in soccer, which is your sport? Uh, do, do you hope that players focus year-round or do you think there's value in playing multiple sports and developing other skills and much muscles and stuff? Much more value in, year, in, in um, multiple sports. I'd hope they don't focus on year-round. There was an interesting study I read years ago. It was in California. Um, I think there was some Stanford athletes. It was focused on Division One athletes mostly, but it, it asked them when they specialized. The large majority of them played multiple sports until they were 16 years old. And at 16 or so is when they decided they really, if they wanted to play in college, now that that study might have been eight or 10 years ago, maybe not even that long, but it's so hard, as you know, look at Colby. It's so hard to, uh, we we were looking, again, we were talking off air, but we looked at their basketball team. There's one player from Maine out of the 14 or 15 kids, and they're from all over the country, if not world. It's so hard to even play division three that there is high school sports season. It's just not long enough to get good enough to play in college. But there is still a lot of value in playing multiple sports. You know, my son, who wants to be a college basketball player, played three sports through eighth grade and played two sports through his sophomore year. This year as a junior, he decided not to play soccer, and he's now year-round basketball. Now, he always played basketball year-round, but he also played other sports. I do think there's a huge value in multiple sports. We have uh, Mike Haggerty here. He is the Yarmouth High School boys varsity uh, coach as well as a teacher in the Yarmouth school system. In our, in our last couple of minutes here, Mike, talk about soccer in the U.S. And, you know, obviously here in Maine and specifically in southern Maine, we have some really strong programs. But then you go over to Europe and particularly in the U.K. where soccer or football, as they refer to it, is at a whole different level mm. You know, where do you see soccer in the U.S. and soccer in Maine? And are we at kind of the high point relative to, you know, where we've developed? And as a high school, I, I, uh, you know, I may be misstating this, but, you know, over the years, there have been young players that have come over from uh, other countries that have either been on your team or played in a similar league. And it feels like, Many of those players are more advanced because they're they're playing year round and they 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 grow up as they learn to walk kicking mm. a soccer ball. So where do you think U.S. stands in terms of soccer, and do you think it's growing or do you think it's at a, kind of the high water mark now? Well, I I do think it's growing. I I think some things have to happen organizationally nationwide. Which ironically, Bruce Arena, who just got hired, replaced Klinsman for the U.S. men's national team coach, has has reemphasized his need or his desire to want to get a lot of his players out of the MLS. Klinsman wanted to get a lot of his players playing outside of the U.S. Arena wants them playing in the, wants to draw them from our home league. And I, I think that's vital. I, I don't think if, if we don't get ourselves organized from the professional leagues down, I love the way European soccer runs with their divisions and relegation systems. I also love the way Major League Baseball runs it. 
when they have organizations that kids can grow up to right. and be drafted through. Youth soccer is so unorganized right now across the country. There's no clear organization. There's no clear leader. We have U.S. Club. We have U.S. YSA. We have all, all these youth leagues that aren't working together, and there's no gradual build. So I don't think there's a common educational theme to say, how are we going to get better? I don't think we're going to become, the MLS won't become as well-respected as the other leagues around the world until we have a much better tiered linear system of development in the country that will trickle down to youth clubs and high school programs and, and clubs like GPS. So I think we're a ways away. I th we're doing okay. There's also more choice in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. So <laughs> for kids, for athletes to be playing multiple sports and doing things. But so. do you think culturally or socially there, there was um, there's what it was an impact in the last 20 or 30 years where it feels there was a little bit of a different shift for early community soccer where everyone played, everyone got a medal, uh, winning and losing was de-emphasized a little bit. And so there's an argument that suggests, it, you know, for kids developing, everyone should be part of it. But then there's a counter argument where you're not developing the pursuit of excellence. You're not letting exceptional athletes perform at an exceptional level. Yeah. And, and where, where do you, where do you stand Well, there's a great debate about what is the age where you do start doing A, B teams. You do start making cuts. Cutting, you you know, do start letting kids play and Telling up. a kid, you're, I'm sorry, you didn't make the, the squad. Yeah. You're not part of the 15 or whatever, you know, how many people you carry depending yeah. on the level. I'm a big fan of, of that at a certain age. I found that at you, I, I would, you know, prior to high school, I'd like to see no one be cut, but find the right level. When you start to go A, B teams is a, is a very interesting debate. We do it in Yarmouth at U13, so 12-year-olds, 12, 12, 13-year-olds. Um, we've got some pressure to do it younger, but that's what I think the Premier Clubs are for. So I think there's a lot of choice. I, sorry, I run right. out of time there, but this could be a whole nother hour just on that topic alone. When is the right time to ramp it up and get more serious and get selective? So final question. Uh, yeah, you've been in, in Yarmouth at least as the uh, the head soccer coach for 20 years. What do you think, another 20 years? Uh, five put, or put 10 you, anyway. Put you, put you on the spot. Five or 10 anyway. I love it here. I, I don't see, you know, thinking five years down the road, I don't, I don't have any desire to go anywhere else. I love what I'm doing every day, so... Yeah, it's been great. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's always great catching oh, up. Yeah, and I, I think that not only is in terms of uh, the success that you've had as the uh, uh, boys varsity coach, but also in the community, uh, you're fully involved and committed. And as, you know, as a parent in the community where you've taught a couple of my kids, which I think has been great, really just want to personally thank you for your commitment to Yarmouth and not just Yarmouth, but soccer and Maine and, uh, yeah, it's great having you around. Well, I think I've benefited much more. I think I've gotten more out of it than I've given, but thank you. Well, thank you. That's uh, Mike Haggerty, who is the head boys varsity soccer coach, also a teacher in the Yarmouth school system. You've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with steve -O, News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5 FM. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.